us today. Besides gifts and talents, besides favor and all of those other good things that often come and bless us when we live rightly, we ask, Lord, for something deeper, something invisible, something that's not usually praised as much as gifts and talents and blessing and all of those things. Lord, we ask for the character of the Father to adorn his church. We ask for the love of Christ to pierce our hearts. And we ask for the fruit of the Spirit to take root in the deepest parts of who we are, that we would be changed and that we would look more like your beloved son today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of God. So what's a big deal with oaths? God has a lot of real estate in the Bible. There's a lot of space to write about a lot of things. And he did write about some significant things, if you think about it, right? Adultery, uh, murder, contempt, hatred, lust. Those are big things. We get that. Why devote several verses to oaths? What's the big deal with them? I just want to remind you of this particular section in the Sermon on the Mount that we have been. Remember that we left a hinge verse in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus saying that he has not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we are right now in this pool of examples in which Jesus is telling his disciples and his people, this is the type of righteousness that exceeds what you see in the, uh, in the Pharisees and the scribes. This is what the kingdom of God actually looks like. It's actually more intense than what you see in the religious professionals of your day. And so Jesus, right now, speaking of oaths, is continuing in that, showing righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and true righteousness that's born in the heart, not simply uh, the behavior. And he just happens to use one thing that intersects with people's lives, uh, how we uh, use oaths, vows, and some of those similar things. It might help uh, make the connection for you if you understood a little bit about how oaths were used in Jesus' day and how they were designed, how they ended up being used and abused in Jesus' day. When he says in verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, he's speaking about Moses uh, delivering the law to the Israelites, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord uh, according to what you have sworn. He's, he's not, Jesus isn't uh, quoting literally any particular verse. He's rather alluding to a few places. He's alluding to uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness. He's alluding to Leviticus chapter 19, 12, Numbers chapter 30, verse 
uh, 2 in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21 through 24. And I just want to read that last one uh, to see kind of what he's referring to. And you'll get, a, you'll get an, a, an example, of, uh, kind of a sense of what he's speaking about. And I'll just read verse 21 and, uh, through 24. It says, if you, Moses is saying, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you'll not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. In other words, if you make a vow to the Lord, then you should do it. If you don't make a vow to the Lord, then you don't have to do it. Pretty simple, right? If you make a vow, if you tell God that you're going to do something, then you're going to be obligated to do it. So be careful with what you vow. Be careful with the oaths that you make. This is very straightforward, very simple. But like so many things, especially the last three laws that we've seen Jesus address, after many years, even many centuries, these simple laws that uh, express the heart of God became manipulated, uh, became turned into other things. And this particular one about making oaths and uh, making vows, after a certain amount of time, a large body of laws began to be developed around this concept of oaths. People started asking, well, what does it mean to make a vow to God? And how can I not make a vow to God? And, and, I, and what can I get away with without actually sinning? And, and what does this entail? And after a while, a large body of laws became developed around this concept of oaths, making it really complicated. We have books, uh, ancient books like the Mishnah that uh, address some of these things. Uh, and they, they essentially said this one thing. Uh, they began to wrestle through this issue. What does it mean to make an oath to God? Well, and they would come up with this, this type of concept. Number one, an obligation depends on the proximity. This is their thought process. It depends on the proximity of the object sworn by to God. In other words, if I make an oath and I swear by an object that God uh, seems to care about, then I, I am obligated to that vow. But if I swear by an object that he doesn't care that much about, then I, I am free to break that oath if I need to. This is kind of the thought process in that day that uh, kind of went haywire. An example of this, one rabbi speaks uh, of an allowable or a, per a permissible oath. This is really silly, but he would say this. If you swear by the temple, you don't have to keep your word. But if you swear towards the temple, then that oath is binding because somehow when you're praying towards the temple, you are more connected with God. In other words, God is in certain things and he's not in certain other things. This reminds me of when I was a kid and we uh, used to do those, those weird things that we would make weird oaths like pinky swearing, you remember that? I remember people getting so weird about that. I remember people walking up and they wanted me to do something for them. I had no investment in that obligation whatsoever, but they would, there would be times where kids would like try to wrestle my pinky into their finger, even though I had, I had no intention of doing what they said, because if your pinky's touched, then all of a sudden you're bound by that oath. And we would just get into so many weird arguments and pinky swear, and it was like a real thing for me when I was a kid, like, oh my gosh, I made a pinky swear, I have to do it or I'll die. And there were so many things like that, right? Pinky swear, swear by the hair of your chinny chin chin, like the, the list goes on and on and on and on. Now as a kid, that's funny maybe, a little cute, but uh, 
this is, this is very real for the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day, the pinky swear and things like it. It became common actually to use oaths as a way of differentiating between things you, you could get away with or uh, were obligated to. It was uh, tantamount to getting out of an obligation or out of something you spoke in honesty. In other words, if you say it a certain way, you don't have to keep your word. And if you say it this way, you do have to keep your word. Jesus comes along and he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Instead of doing all that, instead of troubling yourself with what's allowable and what's permissible, how about you just don't swear at all? Now I want you to think about that for a second. This is where we get into some of the words of Jesus that are tricky, that, that cause people to say, he's not serious, is he? This is where when you start to read large swaths of Jesus' words, you, you start to see how radical they appear as evidenced by how many people say, well, that's a great idea. That's an ideal that we should live to, but we can't really live the way that Jesus is saying. How many of you could stop using oaths right now for the rest of your life? What about things like when you're in the court and you have to, you have to um, uh, swear on a Bible or something of that like? Is Jesus saying you are never to use oaths? What about marriage ceremonies when we give vows and oaths of that ilk? Are we to never use oaths ever? Some Christians would take this quite uh, at face value. Uh, there are some strands of uh, the Christian faith, such as the uh, Anabaptists and the Quakers, who would say, yes, Jesus means no oaths ever at all. Uh, there's a story of George Fox, who wrote the, the Book of Martyrs. You might be familiar with that book. He was the founder of the Quakers, and he was actually sentenced to prison for not swearing over a Bible that he would tell the truth. And when he was face-to-face with the judges at Lancaster for that, he, uh, he would say to them, you have given me a book here to kiss and to swear on. And this book which ye have given to me to kiss says, kiss the son. And the son says, in this book, swear not at all. I say, as the book says, and yet ye imprison me. How chance ye do not imprison the book for saying so? Can I just speak like that for the rest of the sermon? (laughs) Old English is awesome. But he had a point. He was all, why are you imprisoning me for taking Jesus' words at face value? And actually, as the story goes, that ended up changing the court procedure today. You can have the option, I don't know if you know this, but you can have the option of not swearing and just affirm that you are telling the truth. But I don't think that George Fox got to the heart of Jesus' words. I think he got a sense of them, but I think he missed the point of what Jesus was saying. Nor do I think Jesus was throwing out an absolute prohibition against all oaths everywhere at all times. This is why I think that, because Jesus partook in some oaths, right? Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, Jesus was uh, on trial before the high priest and he was silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, there's an oath, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered him, saying, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus participates in an oath. You may say, well, Jesus was God in the flesh, so he's different. 
Well, Paul does the same thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he invokes the name of God. He says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. He calls on God as a witness, a form of an oath. Uh, and there are many examples in the Old Testament and New Testament of oaths happening that are very good. Uh, and God doesn't seem to be troubled by them. So why does Jesus speak about this particular oath in bad terms? Why are some oaths okay, but these are not? These that the Pharisees and perhaps we practice. And it seems that whenever God engages in an oath or a covenant or a vow, whenever Jesus does, whenever Paul does, whenever a prophet or an apostle does, it's usually designed to elicit the faith of the people hearing. It's not designed to increase God's credibility, right? Here's what I mean. It's not used to manipulate your emotions into believing someone who you would normally deem unbelievable. There's a way to manipulate people into believing you to build up your credibility. God does not need to, be, uh, uh, not need to convince us of his trustworthiness. Numbers 23 verse 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So when God gives a vow or he gives an oath or he makes a promise or he gives his word or he engages in a covenant, it is not for the reason of uh, building up his credibility. He doesn't need that. It's to pull you into a response. It's to elicit your faith. So in this situation in Matthew, it seems that the Pharisees and the scribes were manipulating words. They were using oaths uh, to differentiate between what they could keep and what they wouldn't keep. We could say this. He was condemning the use of oaths to compensate for a lack of integrity. The Pharisees, who were quite unbelievable, had to go beyond the normal uh, operation of words to trick people, to use rhetoric, to use oaths, to use promises, uh, to use outlandish language in order to persuade people that what they were saying is true. This seems to be an issue of integrity. Theologian Helmut uh, Thielich uh, said it very well uh, in this way. He said, whenever I utter the formula, I swear to God, I am really saying, now, I am going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that normally, ordinarily, overruns my speech. In fact, I am saying quite more than this. I am saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they are counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. Jesus seems to be speaking about integrity, honesty in the heart, trustworthiness. The Pharisees had no integrity, so they had to make up for it by using oaths and vows of those sorts. Now, we might see that with them because they made a lot of oaths, uh, but what would that look like today? We probably see it all the time. You see it in how we are perhaps very uh, dis distrustful of uh, mainstream media and news. How do we know that what they're telling us is true? 
We know that everyone has an agenda and they are speaking forth from that agenda and they are telling us, they're promising, they're uh, 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 claiming that what they're saying is true. They're claiming that what they're saying is accurate. And time and time again, we see that it sometimes and maybe often is not. That's a big example. We see it in uh, big corporations or big organizations that use marketing and PR ploys and are spin doctors who make mistakes and try to cover it or hide it up. We see it in those types of things. But I don't want to talk about those types of things. I want to talk about my life and yours. It's easy to spot it in the big things, but think about the small things for a moment. Do you ever, do people ever expect you to be late? <laughs> you ever see that uh, license plate? Uh, it's not a license plate, it's like the frame and it says, on time is when I get there. <laughs> you know what the person is saying? They're like, I'm, I, I, uh, if I could use my paraphrase, I so disrespect you that I'm gonna come whenever I want and, and that's gonna be your problem. <laughs> now, here's the thing. That's kind of lame, but at least they admit it. At least the person with the license plate admits it. But how much worse is it to say, when you're late, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I'll be, I'll be on, time uh, on time next time. Or I'm going to make it next time. Or I'll see you at 5 o'clock and I'll be there. Knowing that you have no intention of being on time. I think that might be a similar case of what Jesus is talking about in the small things in our life. I'll be there, even though you know, you know you won't be. And I'm really sorry, even though you really aren't. Do you have a reputation for not following through? Not doing things that you said you would do? Not making those appointments? Not following through with uh, something that's required of you? And when that happens, do you say things like, I'll get it to you, or it's in the mail, or I'm on it? knowing full well that you're not on it and it's not in the mail and you have no intention of getting it to them. These are the small things in life. These are things that we kind of breeze over because they're not that important. But what are we doing? In all of these examples, we're using words in a very clever way to provide a backdoor out of an obligation. Seems to be very similar to what Jesus is speaking about using irrelevant statements to manipulate others into giving us our way. Perhaps we even use it the way that we feel. How you doing? I'm fine. When your whole world is falling apart. So I revisit my original question. What's the big deal about oaths? Why does Jesus care about oaths? It seems like in this context and in our day and age, it's a subtle way of using other people for self-gain. It's a way of manipulating people to get out of something for selfish gain. The salient point, I think, that Jesus is making, uh, and if I could go back all the way to his, his word on murder and uh, adultery, if I could paraphrase it, he'd say something like this, you don't have to kill or cheat on your spouse or swear to be outside of the kingdom. You just, have a, you just have to have a heart that longs or cultivates those things. You just have to entertain contempt and lust and a lack of honesty. 
is a person who entertains those things, even if they never get so far as to carry them out in their body that are outside of the kingdom. And hence is the mystery of the gospel, that these Pharisees and scribes, those that the world expected above all other people to make it into the kingdom. Why? Because they were good at religion. They were good at church attendance. They tithed on every single thing, even their herbs and spices. They showed up on time. They did the right thing. They said the right thing. We'll see in Matthew chapter 6 how glorious their behavior was, praying on street corners and tithing on uh, every little thing and letting everybody know about it. If there's anyone on the face of the planet who has a good outward form of righteousness, it would have been them. And Jesus says, you are so out of sync with the rhythms of the kingdom. In fact, you're, you're not even in it. If the people who are most outwardly righteous can't even get into the kingdom, then what hope does anyone else have? That's the beauty of the gospel. We have no hope except that the kingdom is made available and brought near in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the beauty of the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who have no spiritual righteousness or clout. Blessed are those who hunger, are hungry. Blessed are those who desire and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are the spiritual zeros, for Christ has come to bring them the kingdom. And right here, that Christ of the kingdom, the king that rules over his kingdom, who's expanding his reign and his rule, comes to everybody who will listen and he confronts them in their lack of integrity and honesty and transparency. And he does it in a couple ways. I think he does it, one, he corrects their head knowledge and he provides for them a little heart knowledge. Here's what I mean, corrects their their head knowledge. The first thing that Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees, the scribes, and even the people listening to him on that North Shore in Israel, as he says, I say to you, instead of swearing at all, don't, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. This is beautiful. Jesus is, in the most simple way possible, telling everybody who listens, God is present everywhere. God is omnipresent. You can't swear on one thing and expect to get out of that obligation and think that if you swear by another thing that you're somehow obligated because God is present everywhere. Everything is sacred in that way. Now, I don't, I'm not speaking about pantheism, that, that new age uh, belief that you know, God is in everything and everything is God, like the tree is God and the pulpit is God and that microphone is God. I'm speaking about omnipresence, that comforting, secure truth that God is everywhere. What David would pray in Psalm 139 when he would say, uh, where can I flee from your spirit? If I go to the depths, you are there. If I go to, uh, uh, on the winds of heaven, you are there and your right hand is there to grab me. It's that truth that comforts us when we are lonely and discouraged and no one else is there for us. It's that, that, that age-old truth that God is everywhere. That is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, you can't swear, uh, don't take an oath at all by heaven as if that weren't important for that's the throne of God. He's there. Same with the, foot, uh, same with the earth. That's God's footstool. Same with the city of Jerusalem. That's the city of God. 
Don't take an oath by your head for even, uh, even you have no power over your body. God created it. God is present everywhere that you could think to swear by. So don't swear by anything. Anything you say is going to be sacred and important. In fact, to take part of this kind of scaling back in objects, like uh, this is important and that is not important, is, is to be very ignorant of God's presence in every area of life or to assume that he's absent in some places. It would be tantamount to me saying, you know what, I can say good and true things when I'm behind the pulpit because that's sacred, but when I'm at my home, I can you know, just do whatever I want and say whatever I want, and live however I want. No, we'd be disgusted by that. Why? Lack of integrity. God is everywhere. He cares about everything. So you can't swear by the earth, the sky, or the church building, saying that God is not in them, and that somehow it's not as binding, because God is present everywhere. This was what Jesus was dealing with in that time. We get a, a, a glimpse of it in Matthew 23, 16 through 22, when he would say to the Pharisees, you are blind guides, for you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by that oath. You see the silliness of their rhetoric? Jesus kind of just exposes it for the silliness that it is. People were saying, well, if you swear by the temple, you know, it's not as holy as the gold in the temple. And they would go on and on and on, and he would just argue through it, saying, uh, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And who, whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And he's just simply putting out, God is everywhere. And the way that you act behind closed doors is the same in the eyes of God as acting in public. And this affects even things like oaths. And so he gives them, he corrects their theology corrects their head knowledge. But then Jesus does what he often does, and he, he takes that and he pushes it down into their heart. It's not just about right behavior. It's not just about the type of behavior that you have, but the type of person that you're becoming. He says this in the last line, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, you don't have to take oaths a yes or no will suffice. You should not need to say anything more than yes or no to convince anybody. That should be the mark of a kingdom person. And you may say, well, that's great in theory, and that's a great ideal, Jesus, but you know, some people do need to say yes or no. Some people do need to use persuasive words. Some people do need to take uh, extenuating uh, lengths uh, to persuade and to convince. Well, we should be asking ourselves, why? Why do I need a pinky swear in second grade that I'm gonna bring that such and such thing back to my friend? Because he doesn't trust me. Well, it's funny in second grade, but when we, when we turn 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and people need more from us than a yes or no, that should tell us something about ourselves. I think that what's, that's what Jesus is doing. It's not enough to say right and true things. We must be the types of people from whom yes or no carries great weight. When we say yes, I will do it to the people listening, it carries great weight 
If you're an honest person, in other words, people will expect that you'll do what they say. This is very simple. This is an issue of character. And here again, Jesus goes back into the same thing he's been going through with lust and contempt and everything like it. I don't just care about the things that you do. I care about your heart and the person that you're becoming. I don't just want you to not swear. I want people to trust you because you're being conformed to my image. And he speaks, first of all, by correcting their theology, by talking about the presence of God, and then he moves into the deepest parts of the person by speaking about their character. Do you see these two themes that Jesus is working with? The presence of God and the character of people? I love that. They seem to be so intertwined in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. One seems to be heavily dependent on the other. In other words, if the Pharisees would have just understood that God is present everywhere and that would have caused in them a sense of worship and reverence, they would not take oaths and they would take seriously as binding their smallest yes and their smallest no. In that way, the presence of God comes to bear on people's character. When we submit to his indwelling presence, it has a transformative effect on who we become and who we are. It always works that way. Those two should never be divorced. God's presence in us and around us constantly changing who we are becoming. Old 17th uh, century Puritan, uh, Scottish Puritan Henry Scougal wrote concerning this. They, speaking of Christians, know by experience that true religion is a union of the soul with God. A real participation of the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the apostles' phrase, it is Christ formed within us. God isn't just concerned about behavioral modification. He wants to change you from the inside out. It's not enough for God to change uh, you from being a liar to being a truth teller. He wants to change us to be the types of people who love the truth. We aren't just doing it to get by or to win favor. When we're far from God, we tend, to, we tend to become a lesser version of ourselves that he intended. Have you noticed that? The less time you spend in the presence of God, the more you become like your old self. In this case, in the case of the Pharisees, it was, an, it was a lack of being aware of God's presence that was directly related to them manipulating people around them. So it's not enough, I think, to ask ourselves, are we speaking honestly? Am I speaking the truth? I don't think that goes deeply enough. I think a right question to ask is, are we becoming God's version of ourselves? Are we becoming the types of people that love the heart of God? To not be so obsessed with keeping rules and check-marking boxes off and saying, did I lie today and did I tell the truth? But rather being obsessed with, am I becoming more like the, the person God intended to me to be? Am I being conformed to be more like Jesus Christ? Am I loving his heart? Am I hating sin? Am I being more like him? And out of that will flow all of those other things. You don't even have to nitpick about them. They'll just become who you are. Honesty will be the habitual outflow of who you are. 
right now, what the outflow is of your life is evidence of who you are. Words are just a symptom of the heart. You say, well, I, I am a raging madman, I swear often, and I use my words to tear people down, and I cut people up with uh, my words, and I tear them apart with my thought life, and I hold grudges, and I'm bitter, but I come to church. Jesus would say, the evidence of your heart says that you are living far away from the rhythms of the kingdom. Who cares about your church attendance? is one helpful thing in the life of the Christian, but the evidence of who you are becoming is in your heart. Words are just a symptom. You could fix your words and make them pretty all day long, and maybe we do that. Maybe we come on a Sunday morning and we speak well to each other and we put on a smile on our face and we, we, we worship and we praise God and we pray and we sound, uh, uh, we have an, maybe even an air of spirituality, but Monday through Saturday, our hearts are desperately weighed down by rage and anger and lies and deception and all of those things. Jesus would say in Matthew 12, how can you speak good when you are evil? Ouch. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That is very nerve-wracking, but it's also very hopeful. I love the thought of being told by my God that I want to create out of you a person who when he's pushed, when he's put on edge, treasure will emerge. I wanna be the type of person that when I suffer, treasure from heaven emerges. And I'm, not, I'm speaking about far more than just being a hypocritical fake who puts on a happy face when things are hard. I wanna be a sponge who soaks up the kingdom principles of God and when trouble comes, that's just what comes out. Like you can't, like you squeeze an orange, you don't get vinegar, you know what I'm saying? Or maybe you do. I wanna check your produce. I love this because God, yes, he's, he's given us a, a line. He's giving us some, some hard words. By our words, we are condemned, and we'll give an account for every careless word that we speak. He's also giving us hope, and he's giving us a way out of that. He's saying, I want to transform your heart, not just your mouth. God actually cares about who you're becoming. Do you believe that? He, be cares, he cares about who you are now, and he cares about who you're going to be in 10 years, and he cares about who you're going to be when you're 80, and he cares about who you're going to be when you're 90. He's not just satisfied with you going through the motions the rest of your life to see you at heaven's gates. He cares about you now. I love that. He cares about the type of person you're becoming and not just how you act in public. Henceforth, the words of David to God in Psalm 51, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. <laughs> Whatever that is, I want it. So Jesus' little spiel right here, his, his little antithesis, raises really a deeper need. It's to be transformed in the inward being out of which arises the types of men and women 
love truth, love honesty, love integrity. We're being built by the character of God. And for that kind of person, you can see how they would develop a reputation for being truth, truth tellers. They would naturally develop a reputation for uh, being honest and not have to ever resort to oaths or rhetoric or verbal manipulation. And to them, Jesus says, you can just say yeah and people will believe you and you can just say no and people will believe you. But do you see how that happens not by us leaving this building saying yes and no, but by our heart being transformed and the fruit of that being honesty. Do you want that? Do you desire truth in the inward being? Or do we just want to look good? I spent a a large section of my life wanting to look good, having grown up in the church since I was zero. I'm a professional at looking like a spiritual person. I'm sick of it. I'm tired. I'm only 33, and I'm tired already. I'm tired of that. I want the realities of God's kingdom. I want the power of God's resurrect of Christ's resurrection. I want my heart to be moved by the Holy Spirit. I want to leave this building and I want I want my life to matter. Do you? I know you do. I know you do. You want to know that we're not just going through the motions, that we're not just gathering together on a Sunday, listening to a clever sermon and singing some songs and going about our lives. We want more. We want what God intended when he wrote the book of Acts and we see people going buck wild. Kingdom buck wild does not come from religiosity. comes from people who are tired, who are over-religion, who are over-worldly uh, worldly wisdom, worldly strategies, groupthink, all, stu- all that stuff the world has offered us, and even we have offered ourselves in the church, it comes from people who are, who are sick of it, who are tired, and who want the will of God to be done on earth, and in Santa Barbara, and in Reality SB, and in our lives individually as it is in heaven. I wanna give you two things to leave with today, and it is not go speak truthfully. Anybody can try to do that, and that will not change anything about you. Here's what you should do. We should have and be aware and long for and thirst for continual transforming awareness of God's presence. I think we should start there, right? And we should somewhere, at some point, want to be the kind of people that God is is hoping to make us into. That should be our intention. So I'm not going to tell you, leave this building and say right things. Don't lie, don't use oaths, don't swear, don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) That's not going to change your heart. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I think will be effective for us. When those occasions arise, 
And it might be an oath, it might be something like it, but when you find yourself using your words to manipulate people, when people say, hey, are you gonna be there on Friday at three o'clock in the afternoon? Yeah, I'll be there, when you have no intention of being there. It's a small thing, right? A great opportunity. Ask yourself, why do I do that? Bring it to the Lord. Bring those things. Not just, don't just say, Lord, I'm sorry for lying. But bring to him, why do I do the things that I do? Aim, make it to be your aim to go beyond the layers up here to ask, what are the, what are the hidden dark motivations that cause me to lie? What are the hidden motivations that cause me to tell oaths, to trick people into believing me? Why do I say the things that I do? Why do I not open up to other people? Is it uh, insecurity? Is it loneliness? Is it fear? You will be very surprised at what the Holy Spirit reveals to you when you're willing to go to dark corners. And if you're willing to go beyond the surface, simple behaviors, you start asking, what are the motives of my heart? When you do that, you bring it to God in repentance and prayer and worship, and he will speak to you. He will not be restrained to speak to his people whom he loves. But here's a, here's a problem. And this is what I want to end on today. And I'm actually, uh, I'll just ask the worship team, Alex, to come up and get ready. But for some of you, there are some vices in your life, patterns and behaviors in your life that are evil, but that you have, have been doing for so long that they're familiar. And they're so familiar. Maybe you've been doing them for so long. You've been telling lies. You've been deceptive. You've been manipulative for so long that it's, it's, it's comfortable it's familiar, and you can't even imagine what your life would look like apart from it. And so maybe you're telling yourself why. Maybe you're even a believer, and you're like, I don't want to give up those behaviors. They make me feel good. They make me feel right. They help me get through the day. Why would I change? That sounds hard. I want you to take a moment in silence to read passage on the screen. It's not on the screen yet, but it's the words of the Apostle Paul. I think he gives us a good answer. I want you to read it. I want you to allow it to fall into your mind. I want you to allow it to renew your mind, get its way through your mind into your heart, and begin to control you. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to allow the words of God to get you to dream more to expand your vision of how your life could be if you are free from those vices that have so easily entangled you. Your hope today is in Christ. And I pray that the words on the screen will offer you that great hope.